This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this This is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio. Here's your host, Kristen Tervish. Welcome to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tavish, and we're here for you every Monday night at 5 p.m. Eastern, followed by replays throughout the week. Though my show is called Work of Tomorrow, we can and should not only talk about work. Summer is here, and I hope that you and I get some rest away from work. This summer, work and leisure will take me to San Francisco, Shanghai, and into the Austrian Alps, three places that are known to be almost as attractive as Philadelphia. We already had shows on travel and vacation. Today I want to explore a new form of travel and tourism that is emerging, which is more grassroots, more locally grounded, more sustainable, and maybe even more fun. Rather than relying on mass-produced vacation packages like huge cruise ships, this form of travel emphasizes small groups and custom-curated travel itineraries. So my topic today is uh, new forms of travel, and I have two wonderful guests in the first half of the show. I want to welcome Michael Edwards, who is the Chief Growth Officer at Interbit Travel, a company that prides itself to be the biggest small group travel agency. In the second half of the show, I want to welcome uh, Ryan and uh, Ryan Callahan and JT Kane, co-founders of Highline, a company we'll introduce then. At this point, welcome, welcome Michael. Hi, Christian. Thanks for having me on. Hi, Michael. Uh, what are your summer plans other than work? Sorry, what are my... Your summer plans. Anything fun that you're going to do over the summer, like uh, an expedition, uh, a bike ride, anything cool? Look, we're pretty lucky in our job that uh, our job combines pretty much all of the things you've just suggested. So my summer is pretty much filled up with travel for work. I'm off to China in two weeks because we're having a, a very good look at the Chinese market. So we'll spend some time traveling between Beijing and Shanghai. I'm looking forward to that. I've not spent too much time in China. And then later in the year, I will be doing one of our specialist food tours in Jordan, which is a, sort of a fairly unique way to go and experience places like Petra and the Dead Sea, but with a, with a bit of a twist. So I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to that a great deal. And then I'm hoping to round out the year with a trip to uh, Antarctica early next year. So, uh, yeah, quite a big year of uh, some new adventures ahead. Now, assuming I would find an empty week in my calendar, give, give me your sales pitch for Interbit uh, Travel. Well, you said uh, in the introduction to your show that, you know, we're sustainable, grassroots, authentic. But the word I'll pick up on is um, you said maybe it's the the most fun way to travel. And I I couldn't uh, agree or endorse that more. What we do, and we've been doing it for 30 years now, is small group experience rich travel. So what we like to do is get into the heart of a destination, take a small group of people, never more than 16, you know, sort of averaging 12 with a local leader who uh, understands the country Im- uh, intimately. Um, so we take a group of like-minded people, and they're international travelers. So you may have a few people from the U.S. on there and Germany and Australia uh, and Scandinavia. So what you're doing is traveling with people who share a curiosity and a passion for the world in the way that you do, and we're taking you to having amazing experiences. So if you're going to India, you can do all of the classic stuff. You can see the Taj Mahal. But we'll do it in a slightly more off-the-beaten-track way. We'll take you to unique restaurants or hotels or have experiences that you probably wouldn't get to do if you traveled alone or with a big group. Um, and and that's, that's pretty much what we've been doing for 30 years, and we're seeing an incredible um, growth of, of desire for that type of travel, particularly out of the U.S. Uh, and as I said um, at the beginning, it's, uh, I, re- I reckon it's the, the most fun way to experience the world. 
So you have, uh, in a typical year, I understand you're uh, taking them 350,000 travelers along, uh, thousands right. of trips. Um, what, what does it mean for you operationally? I mean, in some sense, there is, and I, I tried to play on this in the introduction a bit, there's a certain kind of tension between the adventure, the small, and a company that has 350,000 travelers. So how, how do you walk that line? So, look, 350,000 for us. It, it makes us a pretty big company in our space. But in terms of mass tourism, we're still relatively small. You know, the footprint we're putting into a location is pretty small. We're not staying at big, um, bland resorts. We're, we're getting into local communities, and, and we're really working with communities to either develop uh, infrastructure for tourism or putting a pretty light footprint through those destinations. You know, 350,000 people across a thousand destinations and all continents it is relatively small so it allows you particularly in a small group to really get into places that you couldn't do through that sort of mass tourism angle and how we operate that is generally we operate our trips ourselves so we have 21 dmcs around the world that operate and run our trips and um, ensure that we're finding discovering developing fantastic experiences but similarly employing local people to run our tours, people that know the country best, you know, professional guides, but people who are passionate about sustainable travel, and then they work with us to, to run our experience on the ground. So from an op operational and logistics perspective, we're incredibly well structured to, to manage that, um, those sort of 350,000 packs that we, we get a year and, and, and rising. Now, uh, travel by its very nature is a very seasonal business. Uh, how do you balance that uh, the, the, the operational need to, to keep your employees, your facilities, your contracts utilized with the variability of demand that you would in many, you know, many kind of destinations, I assume, have like a best time to visit that location a year? How, how do you walk that line? Look, with, with, for us, I guess it's, it, it's fairly second nature. We've been running trips in these destinations for 30 years, and you do get seasonal peaks, of course, and a lot of the tour leaders that work for us uh, are on a freelance basis and, and they work you know, pretty long and hard during those peak seasons and then they might travel themselves or, or have some downtime in, in the off-season. But what I would say is, you know, with over a 1,000 tours now and we're developing new products and new markets, that seasonality, particularly from um, multiple source markets, that, um, the window of downtime is getting much smaller. We're developing winter products. We're extending the season because there are amazing experiences that you can do that aren't in those peak seasons. So for us, it's quite a nice balance. And it's just the model the tour operators run on it, and it's something we're, we're, we're well-versed in. So the, the, the travel guides that you employ, there are, it's kind of an Uberization model in the sense that you pay what you need. but uh... Uh, not, not quite. You know, there, there, there is... There is an argument that you could uh, Uberize sort of the, the, the tour leader experience, but they're definitely employees of us. They're trained. They are tied into our brands. They're passionate about our values. But, you know, they're quite often they're on contracts, although they're permanent staff, and they come back and only work for our brand again and again. So they don't just dip their toes in. We don't have a pool of people. They're contracted for the season. And as I said, they're fully engaged in our brand and the purpose of our trips and fully engaged with who our customers are and what they're looking for as an experience. So although there is seasonality to it, it's not definitely not the Uberization or, or just um, plucking locals out for short periods of time to run trips for us. We find with experiences and being a values-driven business, you have to have 
and, and most importantly, in your tea leaders, they, in your tour leaders, they have to have that sort of connectivity with your brand and your brand values to be able to deliver those experiences in the way that are meaningful for your customers. Speak a little bit more about that, because I think that gets to a really interesting issue on, on, on how do you train your tour leaders. I mean, again, it lies in the nature of the beast here that you're relying on locals, but you also have a brand and a, a strong reputation for the type of experiences that you provide worldwide. And so how do you train these tour guides to fit into your strategy? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a good question. Because we operate very strongly in the countries in which we travel, so as I said, 20, over 20 DMCs globally, so we have operational centers in Marrakesh, for example, in, in, in Morocco or Nairobi. We have general managers of those DMCs, and they, they're fully responsible for the operational and logistical side of our business. So they're working with local su suppliers, they're doing the contracting, they're understanding sort of changes in their market or unearthing experiences. And they're also responsible for recruiting and training the tour leaders. So we, we in a particular region, let's say it's Europe, we'll get all of our tour leaders together. Some may be new and some may be experienced. And we'll spend fairly intensive periods of time with them, training them on new product, health and safety standards. But importantly, we also, we also talk to them about the value of the brand and the purpose side of our business. We make sure that they understand what we're doing with our foundation so that when they're with customers, and, and you have to remember with 10, 12, 14 people groups, it's very intimate. So after a seven-day, 14-day period together, your tour leader becomes absolutely the linchpin of the dynamics of that group. So it wouldn't work. Our model wouldn't work as successfully as it does if that tour leader wasn't fully uh, immersed in, in your brand values in the same way that our CEO would be or one of our sales staff or a marketing person or a product person. It's absolutely crucial that it's delivered at the tour leader level. How do you how do you codify that knowledge of the tour leaders? We had a, an interesting show with consulting firms recently here where, where how, how I, I kind of welcomed some folks from McKinsey who were sharing how, how consultants share knowledge from one consultant to the other. I would imagine, again, you're in an industry which is very knowledge intense. The tour guides really develop both city-specific and then brand-specific knowledge. Uh, do these tour guides interact with each other? They learn from each other? Or is it the tour guide is always talking to the the, the regional organization first? Look, it's a combination of all of those things. In, in, in our destinations, our tour leaders are professional tourism um, professionals. You know, they come out of either tourism management, tourism courses, and they're qualified. So they come with that professional ethos. And, you know, these days, 30 years ago, you know, I, I as a British person could have probably gone to Africa and taken a bunch of English people around um, some, somewhere in Africa and been semi-knowledgeable. That was okay. But the, now to run really immersive experience rich tours, you have to work with people that are from the region, are passionate about the region and get the region. So they come with a lot of ready-made knowledge. And then obviously we train them. They talk to each other. There's forums internally, you know, intranet groups. There's, uh, there's learning forums. There's times when we'll bring them together for a week or two, and they'll they'll spend a couple of weeks together, and then there's ongoing training. So, and then tour leaders will learn a lot on their trips, and they'll constantly be sharing that. They'll be feeding it back into their regional head office. The regional head office will be sharing some of those learnings with our our team, our global DMC team. That will get shared with another region. You know, and over 30 years of 30 years of doing this, 
you build up a pretty extensive network of very experienced, very passionate, very driven tour leaders, and the systems and processes to harness and share those learnings. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Christian Terbish, and I have the pleasure of chatting with Michael Edwards, who is the Chief Growth Officer at Intrapin. And we're talking about uh, modern forms of travels, kind of away from the mass market, the big cruise ships, towards customized and small group travel, which uh, Intrapin really is an important player in that market. Um, Michael, uh, this, is a bu- this is business radio, and so let's talk a little bit about money. Um, sure. So uh, there's obviously a fee for your services. Uh, well, can you explain a little bit your revenue model? So there is a fee for the, that I pay as a customer. So are, there, are there other revenue streams for you by partnering with destinations, with hotels, or any other kind of forms of money, monetary flows? Generally, our model is a pretty pure one, and unashamedly, we're a, profit, we're a, a purpose beyond profit-driven business, which means that um, we drive profit, and we're a very commercial organisation. And but what we do is um, we invest that money in purpose initiatives, or improving our trips, or hiring great tra- talent, or recognising and rewarding our staff. But essentially, we're a tour operator. You know, we 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 design. We design a program, we package it up, we market it, we put a you know a margin on that, and then we sell it. We either sell it directly to our customers by a website or uh, any channel that's open to customers these days. We partner with retailers and wholesalers. Probably about 40% of our business comes through travel retailers or, or partners. Increasingly, we're seeing some of our products through uh, OTAs or white-label partnerships, or we're designing bespoke products for you know, media outlets that want experiences, but they want experiences branded under their own banner, and that's been a big growing part of our business. And then, like most companies, some of that, um, we fund some of that through co-op marketing. So we'll we'll talk to tourism bodies in each of our source markets and say, let's partner with you. Your, your objective is to get people to your country, or you might want to get people to a specific part of your country. We're, we're a global leader in this. We take lots of people to your region, hey, why don't you fund some of that and we'll do some, you know, joint marketing activity together. But essentially we run tours, you know, and we charge for those tours and our, and our profit model is based off the, the margin and the scale and the volume of, of the tours that we sell. So with all due respect, you're similar to a business school or university, right? You get people together and then give them hopefully a fun or useful experience. Um, so one, 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 I don't want to use the word challenge, but certainly one thing that is important that we do right at the university front is getting the right people together. Um, and so for you also, these you mentioned groups of 16, Michael. Uh, that, that how, how are these groups formed? Because I guess who else is on my tour will have a major impact on how I experience my tour. So what type of things do you employ to make sure that you have a group that kind of bonds well with each other? Absolutely. The, the group dynamic is absolutely fundamental to the success of what we do and also the enjoyment or the satisfaction of our customers. And as I said to you earlier earlier in the show, we, we talked about the, um, the like-mindedness. So as a brand, you know, we're, we're very strong on telling the story of our brand and putting our purpose out. So whether that's marketing through our travel agency partners or via our websites, you know, we're very clear about the expectations of what we do. We talk about our sustainability, which we talk about it being authentic, experience-rich. We cover off who are these suitable, what, what, what you might get out of this. We sort of, in our FAQs and through our marketing and our training of travel agents, we talk about who you might be traveling with. And it's changed hugely. You might, because of the like-mindedness and that desire to 
experience the world in a certain way. It's not uncommon to have somebody on our trips who might be 25, and you might get somebody who's 65. And what brings them together is that wanting to share unique experiences together. And it works incredibly well. Like, like any business, if you travel, if you take 350,000 passengers, occasionally you'll get a, a little schism in that dynamic. But I can say after 30 years of doing this, you know, our, the trip feedback we get, everyone, you, you can go and see the Taj Mahal and you can see the great sights of the world. But more often than not, the two pieces of feedback we get most often is the tour leader was amazing, it made my trip and meeting like-minded people that I'm going to be friends with for the rest of my life. They're the two things that always come back most strongly from our customer feedback. That's really interesting, right, because especially when it comes to travel, and I think that's both true for your nationality, the Brits, as well as for my nationality, the Germans, right? When these guys meet on Majorca, it's typically not known that good things uh, happen. Um, sure. So uh, you mentioned that feedback component in your business. So, so how do you learn? How do you perfect your business? So just like we have at university, we have these things, teaching evaluations where students yep. send in an evaluation afterwards. But beyond just kind of the evaluation forms, what do you do to get better at what you're doing? Because as you said, you've been at this for 30 years and you have arguably reached a certain perfection in this. So, so how do you go about learning? Yeah, look, uh, we do it in multiple ways, but still the most proven way for us is getting that customer feedback um, post-trip. So as soon as you come off a trip, and we, and we let the tour manager, because they've built the relationship, sort of harness that feedback. So when you come off a tour with us, within a day or so, you'll get an email saying, thanks for traveling with us. Here are a few things. We, we'd love to get your feedback on these things. And it might rate from you know, the quality of the tour leader to the quality of the accommodation. And out of that, we get two things. We get a very good picture on what that customer was satisfied with, what was a highlight, if we fell short in any way. And then the second thing it does is it enables us to give, get really good um, feedback on our tour leaders. So a tour leader over a season will be sort of scored on that feedback and we'll get a really good picture of where what, what they're good at and why. And we can similarly share that knowledge with other tour leaders and, and within the business. So we've... We get very good um, research back in that way on, A, the product, the quality of the product, and B, the tour leader experience. And then we do, you know, we're, we're continually using our data to look at where people have come onto our website uh, or, uh, and sort of read blog information and ask questions. These days, we uh, harness a lot of feedback from, from social media. We're monitoring that all the time. We're responding to it. We're getting learning sometimes that we're doing you know, product enhancement or development, we'll, we'll ask our, we'll ask our um, customers via social media what they think and we get some feedback. We increasingly, we do, um, we, we bring customers in and, and we talk to them about various things. But again, it's, it's been a pretty robust way. You can't run, you know, if you're going to be a successful tour operator, as I said, the quality of that tour and the quality of the tour leader is absolutely paramount because it, it just doesn't work with a group of 12 if you don't consistently maintain your standards and consistently innovate based on what your customers want. And that's changed massively over the years, you know. So, Michael, in education, uh, to continue that metaphor, we've done a fair bit of research, uh, we collectively, the research community, connecting the class size and the learning achievements. 
when you have just because of the natural variation that you have in, in, in kind of program attractiveness and seasonality, when you see smaller groups and larger groups, is a, is a 10-person group happier than a 16-person group? Or do you find because there's so much peer-to-peer interactions in your group travel that actually there's, there's no effect on how many people are on these, on these tours? To be, uh, what we've learned over the years is there's not a huge amount of difference, say, between 10 and 16. Um, it's relatively small, and over a period of time, people can get to know each other. We build in lots of free time on our trips so that people can do their own thing, or if they've bonded with people, they can you know, share some experiences and time together. Once you go beyond 16, once you start going into the 20s, it, you know, 20, 30, and then up to the you know more typical tour operator group, traditional, you know, the, the, the coach companies of 40 or 50 people, it does by nature impact the the trip. I'm not saying people don't have great trips and there's great um, providers in that space and it's perfectly um, they're perfectly great trips for, for for people. But in that 40 to 50, it suddenly becomes a bit less personalised. Your ability to see some of the local experiences because you know you can't go to smaller restaurants. The accommodation needs to be of a certain size. So by nature, you're starting to move people a little way a little way from that grassroots or or some of those really unique experiences just because the, the, the logistics of the thing won't allow for it. But to be honest, between 10, 14, 16, 18 even, there's not a great deal of difference in terms of the satisfaction scores. Um, but it, it just works out that 16 has become sort of the magic number that we use, we think, is the optimal mix. And that flows through in a number of ways, the infrastructure, the transport requirements, et cetera, et cetera. Sir, you mean when 40 people show up, it's more like an invasion, where when 16 people kind of shows up, it's, it's a little bit more friendly up in atmosphere. Uh, Michael, yeah, it's uh, like if you threw a dinner party, right, and 40 unexpected uh, people turned up. It's not that, that is on the high side, at least for my household. You were expecting, yeah. So. So, Michael, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, technology, because I would imagine uh, we talked about the intro and the competition. They're the the big coach companies, the cruise lines, the the traditional way of traveling. Um, For you, I think, in your market, it strikes me that almost the self-organized travel is is the biggest competitor, right? Because I I take out uh, my TripAdvisor or other kind of travel sites where I can get the local nuggets that your tour guides have, and I organize it myself. Do you see yourself competing? more against people who, when somebody makes a purchase decision, they go like, do I do it on my own or through uh, Interpid? Or do you see yourself competing more with, with, with the big firms, the TUI, sort of the kind of the, 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 the cooks of this world? I think in the past, it was definitely that independent traveler. You know, you wanted to backpack through India or go and see something. And you felt that you, you were more of a traveler and a tourist or more of an uh, you're on more of an expedition because you've done it yourself and you planned the logistics and you felt like in your own personal way you were sort of pioneering your own trip for you as time's gone by we also seen with the growth of experiences and people wanting experiences that a lot of our customer base now is coming from those bigger operators or those traditional type holiday makers that want they may still go and like they still may go on a two-year trip and spend two weeks lying on a beach, but they also want to do experiences, and we offer that. So we're seeing part of our growth, I think, has come from capturing some of that more mainstream market as the world's got more um, more experience-focused, and then also being able to find ways to talk to that independent traveler about the benefits of traveling with a small group. I think social media has helped, you know, this desire to connect with like-minded people. 
our trips to me feel a bit like that. You know, if you're reaching out across the world and you know you can travel with somebody from America or Australia or Switzerland and you share common traits or uh, common interests, you know, that, that's quite a powerful thing and that's become a, a, a really strong USP for us. Now, you you might not think that a German traveler would want to spend seven days with a yeah, so tough. Uh-huh. Canadian, but it's their common ground that bring them together, and that's been quite a strong feature for us in, in sort of selling the small group experience to people that traditionally may have gone on uh, as a backpacker, as a solo traveler. Uh, and similarly, you know, those people that backpacked when they were young through Asia, they grow up a bit, you know, and they want to go back and have another experience in Asia maybe a bit more immersive, but this time they don't want to stay in a hostel and they don't want to run around on their own and, and they want to travel with like-minded people. And we're seeing a big shift in that as well. You know, that slightly older traveler who's maybe had a family um, and now they want to do a trip. And that, that's, been a, that's been a big uh, big part of our growth in, in, in recent years. That slightly older traveler who's done it before but wants to do it now, but they want to do it a little bit more comfortably and with a, a, a group of like-minded people. So you, you, the big growth come in the future, you know, sustained growth will become that mainstream market wanting to do more unique, authentic experiences. I think that's incredibly powerful for us. So you're doing good by connecting people from multiple nationalities, which I guess in, in the times like these is, is, is by itself an important achievement. Um, you also have a foundation that uh, helps the local communities. Can you, can you talk a little bit about the Interpret Foundation which, uh, and what it does? Sure. As I said, it's sort of, we, we run our business on, on both purpose and profit or purpose beyond profit. You know, everything we do is designed to hopefully benefit A, the communities we go through and B, the traveler experience. So... We set up the foundation that um, yeah, it's a registered charity. It runs separate to Intrepid Travel, but it, it shares our values. And, and what it does is it works with NGOs, and, and we identify projects around the world and, and that we want to work with. And through donations from our um, customers and through like-for-like uh, like donations from Intrepid, we'll fund some of those grassroots projects. So... It might be um, community-based tourism in, in Myanmar, for example, where we'll bring some of our travelers through a small village and they'll, do, they'll stay the night and they'll do a cooking class. And as a result, that in turn helps build some of the needs of that local community. So we have a team of people that consistently work on the foundation identifying two things, identifying projects and ensuring that we get funding through to those projects and we're demonstrably making a difference to the communities we travel in and be sort of ensuring that our customers are aware of the foundation and can make choices about you know, whether they want to contribute. And quite often people will travel through a place and definitely you know, a local community off the beaten track. They'll see some of the benefits or the power of this when they travel, and that, that, that brings them back to the brand, and that in turn helps the foundation. That in turn helps us put back into those communities, and that in turn helps us design and innovate better products. So it's quite a nice cycle where the two things are sort of mutually interdependent. Where do you see yourself in five years uh, as, as a business? And when I say where, I know we are going to China, to Jordan, and Antarctica this summer. But in five years, uh, what are your plans for the business? Yeah, look, we're, we're, we're quite unashamed about it. We, 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 we make this claim that we want to be the first billion-dollar um, adventure travel company. Now, We say that figure because we believe that, you know, you put a you put a tangible growth target to it 
and you sort of you get there by by how but through through how you innovate, how you um, talk to customers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we think there's we're still we're 30 years old. We're not a young company, but we still the, the, we're still in a relatively niche space. You know, we're we're still nowhere near as big as those big mainstream travel companies. People wanting to experience things, people wanting to connect, people wanting authenticity, people wanting to share like-minded experiences. We think that's incredibly strong and powerful and very connected to what we do. You know, we've been doing that for 30 years. Um, I think we've helped, uh, in some cases, we've certainly helped in promoting that style of travel. And now we're seeing the benefits of people also wanting to do those kind of experiences. So I think we'll be... We'll still be doing what we do. We do sustainable experience rich travel. We'll have diversified to the extent where if we think we can develop sustainable experience rich travel in, in a new or innovative way, we'll do that. So I'll give you one example. Two years ago, we introduced the concept of adventure cruising. So small ship cruising, but in a very sustainable small group way. So not staying on a big cruise liner and eating buffet meals all night, but a small group of people hugging the coastline, getting into the local um, communities, but via through a small ship experience. So we started that two years ago. We think that will be a big part of our business in five years' time. And again, that will come from two sources. It will come from people who have spent time cruising on the massive cruise ships, but now want a more authentic, intimate experience. And we're starting to see that already. And it will come from our own brand loyal travellers who travel with us, say, to Asia, and they've done a normal tour with us, and they want to go back to Asia and do it in a different way. So that diversification of what we do will be a big part of our growth in the coming years. Says Michael Edwards, the Chief Growth Officer at Interpret Travel. Thank you so much, Michael. We need to take a short break right now when I come back. I will welcome our second guest for today, Ryan Callahan and J.D. Kane, co-founders of Highline, a company that will take you running through Death Valley. So stay tuned. You're listening to Work of Tomorrow. I'm Christian Tabish, and this is Business Radio powered by the Wharton School and Sirius XM. We'll be right back. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 